So oftentimes when I find I come to my formal practice and sit and pay attention to all that's happening internally, usually what's present are a lot of restlessness, distractedness, um, annoyances. There's aversion that often arises. Um, definitely a, a laziness that will often come in, just not really willing to be there. It's kind of this uh, mild, annoying dukkha or suffering that just kind of pervades and does its little dance. And, and I know how to be with it, and I know how to see it and, and kind of inquire about it and uh, understand it or continue to deepen my understanding of it. But there's something really valuable when we experience something more than that, when we experience dukkha that is uh, earth-shattering or uh, shakes us to the core in some way. when the dukkha is so strong that it, in a way, shakes us awake. There's no denying of its presence. So examples of this might be the experience of uh, illness, really difficult illness, and mental illness, physical illness. It could be uh, the experience of losing someone we care about, losing a loved one face-to-face with death um, or near death, perhaps of someone we care about or perhaps our own, coming into contact with the experience of our own mortality in some way. Sometimes it's other losses such as uh, the loss of relationship, breakups, parting of ways with someone that we really care about. Sometimes it's uh, the loss of our livelihood that shakes us to the core. So there's experiences that are part of the human experience that um, often really brings us face-to-face with dukkha. A dear friend of mine right now is going through a very difficult time. And he recently wrote to me saying that uh, I wrote it down. That it's, he said something like, um, it's, it's so, the dukkha is so in my face. The dukkha is just so strong that it's in so real that it's in my face. And, uh, and that's what it's like in these, uh, in these shake-ups, these dukkha shake-ups. There's no turning away from it. We can try really hard, and we might have coping mechanisms that we use for that kind of annoying uh, day-to-day dukkha stuff that 
you know, so we can use our mechanisms to, to navigate that. But in this type of scenario, uh, those, those don't work. They don't work so well. We reach for them and we try them on, but it's just not the same. We actually have to look at what's going on here. So in some ways, when we experience dukkha on this level, uh, and I'm sorry, I'm saying this word dukkha, and some of you might not be familiar with this word at all. Those of you who are new to the practice, dukkha is a Pali word, that means uh, sometimes it's defined as suffering. That's the most co- common use of the word, suffering. Sometimes it's defined as stress, unsatisfactoriness with how things are. Um, and so when we are face-to-face with this, this level of suffering in ourself, um, This, I think, is when the Dharma, the way things really are, the truth of things, can really come alive. That is, if we know how to orient to it in this way. If we don't, then we're overcome by it. We're taken over by it. Uh, We find ourselves overwhelmed, uh, perhaps uh, deeply lost, but if we know how to orient it in this way that um, where we can actually hold it as some kind of messenger or gift, there can be deep transformation that comes from that. The teacher, spiritual teacher uh, Ram Das, who... Um, you know, I, I didn't actually know him... Uh, before this time so well, but um, apparently was a very uh, um, vital, energetic person, uh, prolific speaker, and had a stroke. Many of you know who he is and know that he had a stroke many years ago, which left him um, with... Uh, a number of physical disabilities as well as um, a real challenge in speaking. He, he still now still has a hard time uh, with his speech. This is the way that the stroke affected him physically and verbally. And he talks about the, the stroke um, and before the stroke, that you know, before the stroke he thought he really knew something about his own mortality and was ready for death. And then because of the stroke, he had to face it in a whole different way. Um, he wasn't sure in, in, at the time that he was going to survive and was facing his mortality and his fragility. And even though he had this very uh, deep, committed practice and deep understanding uh, of the Dharma, it wasn't until the stroke that it, it was able to open up into something even deeper. So he talks about this famously uh, as being stroked by grace. And so there's something um, profound in the ability to take 
our dukkha and find the grace that uh, is there when we are transformed by it. And I have no doubt that everyone or most of you in this room have experienced life in, in this way, in some way, where it's really through our hardships and the challenges, the really difficult challenges that have shaped us, uh, that bring us uh, hopefully into more understanding, more roundedness, um, more connectedness. It doesn't always turn out that way. Sometimes, again, we, we don't know how to orient towards the Dharma, towards truth. And we orient more towards fear and maybe even uh, hatred, uh, frustration, understandably. But when we're in that space, we're really, we're really lost in it, lost in the dukkha. So in this practice, we're given the tools to be with even the most difficult uh, experiences and to use what we are trying to understand in, through our suffering to actually be able to transform it into awakening. There is no awakening without the suffering. There's the dukkha that leads to more dukkha, where we are stuck in it, and we just keep repeating the same old habits, patterns of, of thought and action because we are stuck in it. And then there's the dukkha that leads to awakening. And this is what the Buddha taught. So we have the tools in this practice, systematic ways of training the mind and the heart to be with, uh, with our own internal difficulty. We learn how to look inwards, how to focus inwards, how to stay steady with the difficult. And we're learning how to do that over and over again. And so we get pretty good at that as practitioners. And even in the face of um, things that we can't control, things that are bigger than our own internal experience. So now we're looking at uh, the world and maybe we can bring it in a little bit more and just looking at our country and just what's going on right now. And as practitioners, again, we get really good at looking inward at the struggle that we're having with what's going on externally. And this is because if you're in this tradition and in this practice, that's how you've been trained mostly, is to look inward. And this is really important, to do the inner work, uh, to, to see what is our reaction to what's going on externally, what, is, what are the parts of us that are being stirred up, how is our own greed, hatred, and delusion contributing to this external greed, hatred, and delusion that we're seeing manifest or have been seeing manifest for, for a long time. So we go inward. 
what we're not very good about. And I think um, perhaps uh, this is part of how the Dharma has been taught through the insight meditation tradition. There are many different traditions of Buddhism that um, perhaps are doing this more skillfully or have more practice in doing this. But what, what in the insight tradition we haven't been so good about is then taking that internal exploration and, and then bringing it, turning it inside out, if you will, and bringing it back out into the world to be able to work with and work against the greed, hatred, and delusion that is happening uh, systemically uh, in, in our culture right now, the culture at large, the human culture. There are different opinions about this. Um, there's uh, questions like, do we keep working on our inner awakening with the belief that that is enough? So that's, that's a question that I think comes up for a lot of Buddhists. You know, we're told that the uh, cultivation of our, our own inner awakening is for the benefit of all beings. So if we continue to just focus inward, that is benefiting all beings. Is that enough? Do we need to compartmentalize our spiritual life and our practice uh, from our activism and our social life? For some, that's not very clear. Perhaps we have a strong belief that politics and uh, country and or global matters have nothing to do with the teachings of the Buddha. Some hold that to be very true and dear. So here's a response to that from Bhikkhu Bodhi. Bhikkhu Bodhi uh, is one of the, uh, I would say, one of the uh, main Theravadan, which is in this tradition, uh, translators and commenters on the Buddhist texts. And he's very well respected uh, as a Buddhist teacher and um, as a practitioner, as a monk. So this is actually something he wrote for Lion's Roar in 2007. So some of you will be really familiar with this. So I thought I'd bring it back. This is called A Challenge to Buddhists, and this is just an excerpt from it. So he says, If Buddhism in the West becomes solely a means to pursue personal spiritual growth, I am apprehensive that it may evolve in a one-sided way and thus fulfill only half its potential. Attracting the affluent and the educated, it will provide a congenial home for the intellectual and cultural elite. But it will risk turning the quest for enlightenment into a private journey that, in the face of the immense suffering 
which daily hounds countless human lives, can present only as a resigned quietism. It is true that Buddhist meditation practice requires seclusion and inwardly focused depth. But wouldn't the embodiment of Dharma in the world be more complete by also reaching out and addressing the grinding miseries that are ailing humanity? I know we engage in lofty meditations of kindness and compassion and espouse beautiful ideas of love and peace, but note that we pursue them largely inward, subjective experiences geared towards personal transformation. Too seldom does this type of compassion roll up its sleeves and step into the field. Too rarely does it translate into pragmatic programs of effective action, realistically designed to diminish the action, the actual sufferings of those battered by natural calamities and society deprivation. He then goes on to say that Buddhist teachers often say that the most effective way we can help protect the world is by purifying our own minds. Or that before we engage in compassionate action, we must attain realization of selflessness and emptiness. There may be some truth in such statements, but I think it is a partial truth. In these critical times, we also have an obligation to aid those immersed in the world who, oops, immersed in the world who live on the brink of destruction and despair. The Buddha's mission, the reason for his arising in the world, was to free beings from suffering by uprooting the evil roots of greed, hatred, and delusion. These sinister roots don't exist only in our own minds. Today, they have acquired a collective dimension and have spread out over whole countries and continents. To help free beings from suffering today, therefore, requires that we counter the systemic embodiments of greed, hatred, and delusion. So what I'm interested in this month, um, I'm going to be teaching here uh, each Thursday this month uh, while James is away uh, at the February retreat. And what I'd like to do is bring in themes of discussion and exploration that help blur this line of inner and outer work. And, And it all being really a question something that I'm going to bring forward and for you to explore and to see what seems true, what seems helpful, what seems um, in alignment with the truth as I understand it. So this evening, uh, the structure or the, the training that I would like to uh, really talk about is one that has been handed down over uh, centuries from the time of the Buddha, uh, 2,500 years ago, 
it is a practice that is taken almost immediately whether you go to a Buddhist monastery to practice or to a retreat center anywhere in the world, a Buddhist retreat center anywhere in the world. And that is the practice of non-harming, the five precepts. So these precepts are uh, the practice of restraining from harming living beings, the practice of uh, not taking what hasn't been given to you, the practice of um, restraining from sexual misconduct, the practice of uh, restraining from unwise speech, and the practice of restraining from taking intoxicants that cloud the mind and essentially lead to breaking the four former uh, uh, precepts, so causing more dukkha. So these are the five. These precepts are not meant to be taken lightly. When, when we recite them off, sometimes if you go to a retreat, um, you'll, you might recite them several times uh, throughout the retreat. Certain places you might recite them every single day. And it's easy to just recite them. Feel like, okay, yeah, I'm not killing anyone. <laughs> I didn't steal anything. I'm not going to steal anything. I'm on retreat. I'm celibate, so that's not really a big deal. Um, there's no booze around. That's not going to be a problem. Um, I can't talk because I'm in silence, so that's not a big deal. And so we can take them in this way that's um, just recited and not actually embodied. All of the practices from the, the Buddha are meant to be taken inward and explored and understood So then our expression of those practices are lived. They're understood on our own. And so the precepts are no different. The precepts are a training to take in, to explore, to think deeply about, and then allow those to be a guide in our expression in the world. And in this case, an expression that is uh, with the deep intention to not harm or to cause harm. And then I'd go further to say to prevent harm from happening. So there's nothing um, about this that should be taken lightly. Um, It takes vigilant mindfulness to stay true to the precepts, especially as lay people. When we're on retreat, we're much more protected in staying within uh, these practices. But when we're out in the world, there's a lot that quickly can pull us into um, thoughtlessness, um, easy into breaking one of these precepts. Now, I say breaking these precepts, but immediately I kind of want to take that back because these aren't commandments. 
This is different from a commandment that, you know, that you've, you break and, and now you've, uh, I don't know, what happens when you break a commandment? <laughs> Whatever happens, it's not, that's not what this is about. It's not a commandment. It's a training. It's expected that you're going to not be perfect. But it's also expected that you will try for a perfection in these precepts. It's, a, it's different. Those two things are different. So in a way, it takes a lot of courage to fully take on this practice of non-harming. So this is where I want to bring Dr. Martin Luther King into the talk. So not only because he was uh, an embodied uh, an embodiment of nonviolence and non-harming, but he was also a teacher of this movement. And as a teacher, he had, uh, he wasn't teaching from a Buddhist perspective. He wasn't Buddhist. He was Christian. He did come up with six principles, though, of uh, nonviolence that are very familiar from the Buddhist ear. When I hear them, I just say, yes, (laughs) that's, that's it. That's the Dharma. The Dharma just being the truth. And so I want to share some of that with you as I'm sharing uh, the Buddha's precepts. They beautifully dance together. So to begin with, his first principle of non-harming is that non-violence is a way of life for courageous people. That's number one. So in a way, recognizing that it takes real courage to step into this way of life, this way of being. There's nothing light about it. It takes real courage. And you can know that the people around you who are taking this on are also courageous. So surround yourself by people who are courageous in this way. That's part of sangha. That's part of community, of practice that we're all stepping together towards this uh, aspiration of non-harming in a very courageous way. So this isn't a direct quote, but the essence of the teachings um, coming down from the King Center, which, by the way, there's a beautiful website uh, very accessible, uh, kingcenter.org. They go on to describe this first principle as um, aggressive spiritually, mentally, and emotionally. It's such an interesting word, <laughs> or a, a turn of phrase. And yet it totally makes sense to me This practice of non-harming is, 
in a way, in a battle against greed, hatred, and delusion. And in order to be engaged with it, there's n- we can't be passive about it. This is not a passive practice. It's sometimes really misunderstood that Buddhism is passive. And sometimes it those who are practicing it, and I am one of these people, fall into almost like a complacency uh, where we take that on as the embodiment of the Dharma, as this, oh, passive, I won't get, I'm not going to get involved. Uh, maybe even out of the fear of harming, but I think that might be coming from just not really understanding the larger picture of how our passivity sometimes in itself is causing harm. And so this path of nonviolence, of non-harming, it is an aggressive spiritual path against greed, hatred, and delusion. So let's look at these five again a little bit closer. The first one of non-harming. So sometimes it's phrased as non-harming. Sometimes it's just phrased as uh, not killing living beings. Uh, So let's look a little bit deeper at what that really means, to not harm living beings. Um, We might look at our way of being in the world, how we are being in the world that is connected to beings all over the world, taking a look at our consumerism. How does what we consume affect people? Uh, How does it affect their way of life? How does it affect their well-being? Are we buying products that support... uh, uh, child safety and child labor laws? Or are we um, buying uh, food products that are polluting the environment or causing deep harm to animals and other beings? To start really looking at this, not to break out the whip and start punishing ourselves for the things that we've done, but to just start to take a deeper, closer look of how we are connected to the web of humanity, that we are in no way separate from it. How are we working with this first precept? How are we uh, um, moving about the world and treating this earth? Is the earth part of this living organism uh, that we're vowing to not harm? How do we do that? I think, again, this first precept is also taking a look at what do we not do? What are the things that we've become complacent in or are we shying away from uh, and from our quietness where are we causing harm for others 
Where are we causing harm for beings and for the planet? So these are, this is a deeper looking into this first precept. Refraining from taking what is not given. So yes, this can be stealing. It could be even seen on a um, more subtle level of taking what's not given. So sometimes the example at, on retreat that's, that's offered is if you go into the shower and someone left their shampoo and you go, oh, I like, you know, that looks kind of neat. I'll try that. And you try it and you've now used something that wasn't actually offered to you. So that it could be on that level. But let's look at it a little bit deeper than that. So what's not given? So perhaps it's things that we're talking about, but perhaps it's more of what's not given within relationship to other people. I was thinking about this today. What do we take that's not actually ours when in interaction with other people? So one of the things I thought about was space. We can easily take up space that's not offered. Learning how to step back, give room to other people, to make room for those who are not at the table. To not have to be the loudest voice in the room but to become more of the collective. This is not always so easy to do. And when we're not aware that we're doing it, well, we're just not aware that we're doing it. (laughs) There's not a lot of room to grow there. And so to start to look for this, how am I taking, or what am I taking in relationship with other people when I'm in a group of people? How am I showing up? So this is just another way of possibly looking at the second precept. I want to say that my original intention was to stop with each one of these and hear your ideas of what are the subtler ways for each of these precepts. I'd really like to hear them. These are just a few of the things I've thought about. But we don't, I'm just looking at the time, and so I'm not going to stop with each one. But I hope that you will explore this for yourself. These are just a few possibilities of where we can go with these precepts. But I'm sure I'm not exhausting them. I know I'm not exhausting them. So to continue to look and to question, yeah, how does this relate to me and how I am in the world? The next one is refraining from sexual misconduct. So on retreat, we're practicing abstinence. So that kind of makes it very clear. Off retreat, though, this, uh, this precept is really asking us to bring our awareness more to our sexual energies, our sexual desires, our sexual relationships, and seeing, does greed, hatred, and delusion enter into any of these at any given point. And it might not always be so clear. Sometimes sexual energy is a very subtle experience. We might be really unconscious to it. And the point here is that our unconsciousness 
of our sexual energies, sexual desires, sexual drives, our unconsciousness of it is where often the harm comes. It can be harm to ourself as well as harm to others. It can be harm to the people we really care about and have maybe made promises to the people that we're committed to in sexual relationships. So bringing this into our, our daily life, this, this third precept, and looking at it a little bit deeper. You know, uh, in terms of how this has worked within spiritual communities in um, movements that are really well intended where those who are in power are not in keeping in check with this third precept. This is where we see uh, the abuse of power in a sexual way and how that is deeply harmful to everyone who's involved Um, The community at large can often be very scarred by this. So this is is part of our practice of non-harming. Refraining from unwise speech. This can be divisive speech, harsh speech, lying, gossip, Right now in the world, divisive definitely comes to mind. Really easy to get on that bandwagon, especially through social media. And it's not to um, call anybody out or, you know, (laughs) Uh, but maybe it is. Uh, to point out, (laughs) maybe it is, to just take a closer look at what is being said. Is it coming from greed, hatred, and delusion? It's hard to admit it sometimes, too. It's hard to really, uh, you know, I I think part of the um, illusion that's created from greed, hatred, and delusion sometimes is that we're so justified in our reaction. We're so justified. We're on the winning side. We're on the side of right. And so through that can be uh, this sense of You know, it's okay to uh, to use our words to create a feeling, an emotion that is felt in you to have it felt in others. We need to watch this really closely if we're taking on the precepts. If we're really committed to non-harming, we have to look at this really closely. It's kind of like spreading a cold You get it, you pass it on to another person. It doesn't end there. It keeps, it'll keep going. And there's so much of it right now. We don't need any more. So to really watch how we are 
using our words right now in all forms, social media, but face-to-face as well. Sometimes I think social media creates this veil of safety. <laughs> it's kind of like being in your car and you can say whatever you want and the other person can't hear. There's this a little bit more safety and bravery, bravery, uh, air quotes for those listening. Yeah, so sometimes we say things and we behave in ways that we wouldn't normally if we were face-to-face to the people that we're speaking about. So part of this unwise speech is learning how to listen. Learning how to listen deeply. So it might be that we are engaged with someone who uh, in themselves using unwise speech. And if our courageous practice is to not engage in that way, Perhaps what it is asking us to do is to deeply listen. Where is this coming from? Is it greed? Is it hatred? Is it delusion that's actually speaking right now? Where is that coming from? Is there fear? Is there some kind of need that isn't being met? Can I empathize with that fear and that unmet need? Is there something that, at the core of all of this, I can actually find compassion? This is a courageous practice. <laughs> it's not easy to do. But this is what we're aiming for. I'll bring back the uh, principles, principles of nonviolence now. The second principle is that nonviolence seeks to win friendship and understanding. That the end result of nonviolence is redemption and reconciliation. Yes. This is about coming together. It's about connection. It's not about good people against bad people. In fact, uh, the third principle of nonviolence is that nonviolence seeks to defeat injustice, not people. That's a really interesting way of looking at it. It's not necessarily how we are holding it. We want faces to our hatred and our frustration to make sense of all of this. That's not what we're fighting against. In the context of Buddhism, we're fighting greed, hatred, and delusion, which lives in us all and takes different forms. So then lastly, with this particular precept of uh, wise speech, 
Noticing when the lack of speech is causing harm. The lack of speech becomes unwise. I want to read um, a quote that is also by Martin Luther King. This was on the Buddhist Peace Fellowship website. I had a long talk the other day with a man about this bus situation. He discussed the peace being destroyed in the community and destroying of good race relations. I agreed that it is more, there is more tension now, but peace is not merely the absence of this tension, but the presence of justice. And even if we didn't have this tension, we still wouldn't have positive peace. Yes, it is true that if the Negro accepts his place, accepts exploitation and injustice, there will be peace. But it would be an obnoxious peace. It would be a peace that boiled down to stagnant complacency, deadening passivity. If peace means this, I don't want peace. If peace means accepting second-class citizenship, I don't want it. If peace means keeping my mouth shut in the midst of injustice and evil, I don't want it. If peace means being complacent, complacently adjusted to a deadening status quo, I don't want it. If peace means a willingness to, exploited, to being exploited economically, dominated politically, humiliated, and segregated, I don't want peace. In a passive, nonviolent manner, we must revolt against this peace. Jesus says, in substance, I will not be content until justice, goodwill, brotherhood, love, yes, the kingdom of God are established upon the earth. This is real peace. Peace is the presence of positive good. Finally, never forget that there is an inner peace that comes as a result of doing God's will. So there is, uh, there is a peace that comes in being in alignment with truth, in alignment with the Dharma. So lastly is the, uh, the precept of refraining from taking intoxicants. So really, this is pointing to our, our coping mechanisms. The w- things that we reach out for, usually they're external to us. And uh, we use them to numb ourselves. We use them to not be fully with the dukkha. And for some, it's the classics of drugs and alcohol, um, But there could be many ways in which we cope. Many ways in which we try to numb ourselves from being with this dukkha. The problem with that is the more we resist it, um, there's no chance of us transforming from it. It's just the dukkha that leads to more dukkha as opposed to the dukkha that leads to awakening. Again, this takes great courage 
the suffering that comes from numbing ourselves from dukkha uh, is a harm that we do to ourselves as well as the people around us. Now, it might not be the classic substances. Another way of looking at this could also be looking at what we're taking in in terms of media right now. Can we stay balanced with our, the media content that we're ingesting? Um, staying balanced with the quality of media that we're taking in? Really taking a look at, am I listening to these facts because I want to stay angrily engaged? <laughs> Not that being angry right now is the wrong reaction. <laughs> Anger is okay. But what's the end result of that? Are we really uh, listening because we want the information to be able to move into something greater than it? Can we use it for uh, our motivation to do good? Or are we just kind of becoming sucked in by it and fueling our own hatred? Are we fueling our own greed, hatred, and delusion by it? Are we even enjoying that a little bit? Sometimes I find myself enjoying it a little bit. There's something uh, sickeningly sweet <laughs> about listening to the news and just hate, oh, just give me one more fact that I can just take in and, and use to hate what's happening right now. So to look at our intention of what we're doing here, can we stay in balance with this particular substance? Not easy to do. <laughs> I've run out of time. That's okay. I will share with you the fifth and the sixth principles of nonviolence. So the fifth one is that nonviolence chooses love instead of hate. That's is uh, maybe a simple as simple as you can put it, but I'm not sure it could be more profound in terms of what the Buddha was putting forward with these uh, precepts of non-harming, that we're navigating towards love, we're moving away from hate, we're navigating towards compassion and understanding and wisdom of presence, transformation, awakening. We're moving away from the greed, the hatred, the delusion, the confusion, And then finally, uh, the sixth principle of nonviolence is that nonviolence believes that the universe is on the side of justice. I don't know how to put that into a Buddhist context, <laughs> but there's something about it that certainly is inspiring. There's something about it that um, perhaps rings true in in our own search for something better within ourselves and within the world. 
If we didn't think it was possible, we wouldn't do it. If the Buddha felt that people couldn't awaken because of his teachings, he wouldn't have done it. There is something about good in the world prevailing. There's a true possibility of that. So we can take heart. So what I didn't get to do that I will do next time is for us to take the precepts together. And so again, this is not a light practice to take on, so it may not be the time to take it on. But if you are interested in it, uh, I will start the talk next week with us as a community, those who would like to, uh, taking the precepts together. And we'll do it somewhat ceremoniously. So thank you so much for your attention. We'll dedicate the merit for this evening. So the dedication of merit is an acknowledgement that um, this is nonviolent. This is a wholesome act to come together, to sit, to cultivate, to explore uh, Dharma together. And with it... uh, there is a ripple effect. There's a way in which when we do wholesome things in the world that it affects the world around us. So in the spirit, we can dedicate uh, this practice to not just ourselves, but to all beings everywhere. So we hold all of these beings in our hearts, but then also dedicate the merit to all beings everywhere. May all beings be happy. May all beings be healthy. May all beings be safe. May all beings be free. Thank you for your attention.